0: the
1: couch, off your ass, off the and off your phone. And actually, well, you said, actually, well, you actually
2: well. Welcome listeners. It's It's time to talk elections again. I know it never ends. It really doesn't. But here we are back on another edition of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Fran's not here with us now, and I'm going to insert her mania, mania, mania. And it's heard every Wednesday right here on WRALP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio at 11 a.m. Don't miss it. You can also pick it up on the archives later at WRAL.org or on SoundCloud. All right, here we go. Commonwealth's Attorney's race in Richmond is heating up. So we have a first-timer here, uh, first-time guest on Municipal Mania to talk with us about his race, his candidacy. Would you introduce yourself, sir? And just how about this? Let's start off with the age-old questions in your introduction. Every candidate gets asked, who are you really? You know, and why the heck are you running for a commonwealth attorney in Richmond? And um, maybe throw in a little tidbit about yourself that you haven't told other people in interviews.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, and thank you to RVA Dirt for having me. My name is Tom Barber, and I'm running as the progressive challenger in this Democratic primary for Commonwealth attorney. And really, I'm running uh, in a nutshell because I think that we are missing this incredible historical moment for criminal justice reform that's happening in the country, in the General Assembly, but we are missing it in Richmond because I think we've got an office that's sort of stuck in the 1990s. And I think it's time to modernize our approach to public safety. I'm trying to run with a unique perspective and diverse experiences to talk about bringing a fundamentally different social services approach to public safety, and I'm so excited to be here to share that with you all today. Uh, One thing you might not know about me, uh, and I don't present this way, uh, I present as a a, uh, white male, but my mother is actually from Iraq. She is a Christian minority from up there. She's an Assyrian woman, came over in the 1960s with her family, uh, became a doctor in the 70s and went on to form her own uh, private practice in the 80s at a time when being a woman in medicine was not an easy thing to do. And certainly being a woman of color in medicine was even more difficult. So um, I was raised by someone who's tough as nails and I've tried to be uh, campaigning that way in terms of talking truth to power and I'm happy to be able to be here and do that with you all today.
2: Yay for the mom shout out. So yeah, you have positioned yourself as the reform candidate, progressive candidate. It's definitely no secret that Richmond has quite a way to go uh, when it comes to reform and the public safety, you know, criminal justice realm. So what are the major areas that you want to zero in on? And in your platform, you state that you want to operate with a holistic approach. So, you know, people hear buzzwords all the time like that, and they often just dismiss it. What is holistic mean to you in regards to making changes in Richmond's criminal justice system?
1: You know, that word actually has a a variety of meanings and I think maybe that's why it's got this sort of buzzword flavor to it. But in the criminal justice space, it has a very specific meaning. It comes from this notion of holistic defense, which is a type of defense practice that originated um, with the Bronx defenders in New York that's practiced successfully in other areas of the country And it is the idea that you have to center the system and the defense of someone in the system around the whole person. You can't just look at an individual case. You have to look at the person as a person and ask, why are you in the system? Why do you have this particular case going on? And from a holistic defense perspective, what you're doing in in answering that question is you're providing services to address the reasons the person is offending with the goal of making sure that your client is prepared to go to trial and to talk about a mitigating um, case in terms of sentencing and things like that. So that's the purpose from a holistic defense perspective, but um, I am running on a platform of actually making that a holistic criminal justice system. I don't think it's for a defense attorney to marshal resources to address Uh, the root causes of crime. I think it should be for the criminal justice system to do that. And so uh, in running and talking about a holistic criminal justice system, um, that is my goal.
2: And what are some other like key points of your platform that you really are going to be just nailing in there? When, if you get into office?
1: I, I have really tried to focus on and talk about publicly the need to have transparency in policing the police you know, when I talk about that issue, it's not just as a former prosecutor, which I was under then Commonwealth attorney, Mike Herring. I was also a senior advisor to him on root cause approaches to crime alongside Amon Shabazz. I'm not just talking about policing the police as a current defense attorney, which I am running my own private practice. Um, I'm talking about it as a former security professional myself. I am actually a former Marine Corps officer. I'm a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was a foreign military advisor in those countries, which meant that I took small teams of Marines, embedded with, lived with Iraqi army, Afghan police, operated with them, patrolled with them, advised and trained them, and more importantly, held them to high standards of accountability in their community. Um, So when I see a tactical situation with police in the street in Richmond, I'm not just looking at at it from a legal perspective. I'm looking at it from a security perspective. And I know that we can do better in terms of how we police this city. And I know that part of public safety is policing the police. It is not a separate issue. And so I talk a lot about on my website, um, TomRVACA.com, or if people want to look me up, Tom Barber, they'll find me pretty easily on Google. Um, But I talk about in my first 100 days agenda on day one, publishing public charging criteria for how my office is going to think about and charge excessive use of force incidents. I also talk about the need to establish something called a do not call list, where we're not calling officers who've demonstrated a consistent history of bias in their testimony. Um, And I think those are at minimum things we need to do to make sure that people have faith in the justice system because they have faith that police are not above the law.
2: So you mentioned the CA's office being stuck in the nineties. What do you see as broken? And you know, what solutions do you have for increasing the transparency and accountability there? And how does your priority of ending mass incarceration tie in?
1: The the CA's office is stuck in the nineties because it very much thinks of its work on a case basis, not a person basis. And this gets back to the notion of wanting to establish a holistic process in that office create a holistic criminal justice system that focuses on the whole person. Um, The office is organized, uh, if if we wanna get wonky about it, it's organized in a horizontal prosecution scheme that organizes around cases as the basis of the workflow. And what that means in real life is that if you've got a client like I had um, about a year ago who was charged with 20 different cases he's going to have five, 10, 15 different prosecutors prosecute him because you don't have a single prosecutor assigned to him as a person. You have prosecutors who actually hot potato cases based on when they show up in court. And in that dynamic, it's it's impossible to have a single conversation about why the client is offending. And in this particular gentleman's case, if we had had that conversation, we would have found out, hey, He's 60 years old, he's got an entirely nonviolent record. And although he has 20 cases, he's really one person with only two issues. He's got a pretty significant mental health issue. He's got a pretty significant substance use issue. And this office did not address those issues. Instead, they shuffled the paperwork around and they treated this person like paperwork. Um, My nonprofit that I run in the city, the Virginia Holistic Justice Initiative, took him on as a client. We did the social work required to get him into an assisted living facility with a case manager that addresses his mental health and substance use needs. And he's been off the street for months without any reoffending. And that means he's been held accountable, not just for his personal behavior, but for his circumstances. And he's been treated humanely. And this is the key point, the city is safer because we took a person-centered approach. Um, That is the major fundamental difference between how uh, the office is currently run and how I would run it uh, and modernize it.
2: Five out of 40 prosecutors are people of color? That's right. So that's a huge lack of diversity and it obviously doesn't reflect, um, you know, the citizen base of Richmond. How do you correct that and how do you attract others to even like wanna be a prosecutor from marginalized communities?
1: Yeah, and this is a great question. And I hope the listeners will understand that there's really uh, two concerns here. There's a diversity issue in terms of actual representation. You know, we live in a majority non-white city uh, and we don't have prosecutorial staff that reflect that. In fact, many of them don't even live in the city. They travel in from surrounding counties to prosecute in Richmond's courtrooms. Um, So there's just a basic representation diversity issue there, but what people might not understand um, if they haven't, uh, like me, been a part of doing relationship-driven operations or relationship-driven prosecution or defense, it's that the diversity issue is also a public safety issue because when you have shootings in the community, for example, you have significant crimes of violence, And you need people who've been victimized or people who have witnessed these things happen, be involved in the process and be a part of the process and trust the process. You need prosecutors either like me who have the life experience having been overseas in significant capacities and dealt with a variety of violent issues to can go out and meet people and build relationships and get them into the courtroom to participate. Or you need people who can start building trust based on common touch points, you know, being from the city, looking like the people that have been a part um, of what's happened? And so uh, we have a real problem in Richmond building successful cases because we don't have community members who trust the office to do that well, keep them safe. And it's hard to do that when you send young white straight through college, straight through law school prosecutors into a case that has those kinds of ramifications so the way that we fix this is the way that you would fix anything you have to have an actual plan you got to appoint a chief deputy for diversity and recruitment you have to publish a diversity recruitment plan that looks like establishing active relationships with black law students associations at, at major um, uh, law schools in the commonwealth and beyond you also need to take it a step further and establish a kind of recruiting pipeline at undergraduate uh, campuses, especially historically Black colleges and universities. And you have to actually make the recruitment work. People aren't going to come to you. You got to go out and get them.
2: I noticed that you say, you know, on your website and and talking that you want to reset relationships to build public trust. You don't say you want to rebuild public trust. So you're acknowledging that, the public has not trusted law enforcement. How do you see yourself having the necessary conversations with folks already deeply embedded in Richmond's criminal justice system that might not be as receptive to change as you are?
1: I think that, you know, as with any relationship, uh, it's got its ups and downs and it's got its ebbs and flows. And right now, because essentially of how um, policing has been handled in the city, Uh, especially in an acute sense with regards to last summer, you've got, I think, relations with community at an all-time low. Um, If you look at the number of homicides, for example, in the city in the last couple of years, 2019 and 2020, um, the Richmond Police Department posts online how many of those are cleared by arrest. And as of maybe a couple of weeks ago when I, I last checked it, about 75 uh, had still not been cleared by arrest. In other words, um, there's been 75 homicides where there's been no arrest mates. And it's not that the police don't know how to investigate, it's that it's tough to get people to participate in the process long enough to build a case to get a charge going. And I think that's a huge indicator of where we're at in terms of uh, relationships with police. And so I absolutely think that we have to address that it's gonna take essentially a years long effort to uh, ha- start having those conversations, not just at the chief level or the, you know, captain or lieutenant level, but you've got to get these young patrol officers out to church groups, sitting with uh, church leaders, community leaders, and making sure that relationships are built. You know, the, the prosecution policing can do a lot of good to mitigate short-term violent risk, but it's impossible to do that without the relationships to put cases on. And so I very much believe in a relationship-driven policing model, a relationship-driven prosecution model, and that will be a large part of my focus uh, in the early part of my term.
2: Recently, you know, um, we have started to build the stepping stones in Richmond for a uh, civilian review board. Um, the task force is meeting. They just had um, last night uh, while we were recording this, it would be the, um, the 29th is when they had their first kind of like open forum commentary um, about this sort of thing. How do you see, um, you know, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office's role, like working with a civilian review board? How do you think you see yourself influencing or, you know, working with them?
1: Well, first of all, I think that Kamal's attorney has an, look, prosecutors hold the keys to the system and they hold the keys to the jail in the sense that they have charging power and the ability to advocate whether or not someone goes to incarceration or goes to an alternative. And with that immense power comes a responsibility to take ownership over improvement of the system writ large. That's how I see it. You know that's what I mean when I say that Richmond's Commonwealth Attorney should be our chief criminal justice reform and chief public safety officer, not just our top prosecutor. And so, when it comes to the civilian review board, um, as a as a very first step, as a even get out of bed before you take your first step, you have to lobby and be a part of advocating for it to be adopted successfully and implemented effectively. You know we've got a Commonwealth Attorney's Office right now that has not joined, for example, Virginia Progressive Prosecutors for Justice, which is which is a lobbying group of CAs from around the Commonwealth who are progressive who advocate for things like um, civilian review boards and other um, progressive changes at the at the state level. And I haven't seen this Commonwealth Attorney's Office come out and be supportive of the civilian review board and say, hey, we need to fund this in the way that this task force is saying we need to fund it. Um, so at a first, very first blush, I would be very publicly supportive, especially in, in a budgeting sense, for making sure that city council understands that the Commonwealth Attorney's Office's point of view is that to have rule of law, we have to have transparency in policing the police, and the Civilian Review Board is a huge part of that.
2: So if you had been Commonwealth's attorney last year during the protests, what might you have done differently than your opponent, the incumbent Colette McEachin?
1: This is a great question. I think if people go to my website, TomRBACA.com, and they look on there, they'll find a first 100 days plan. And in that plan, you find a section on public assemblies. And what I talk about in that section is, look, we're Virginia's capital city. We also have the largest student population um, at a single school in BCU. And so we've got young people who are very passionate about social justice issues. And we've got all of those issues being talked about all the time in a legislative context in the city. And so we know that people are gonna be out protesting. You know, we know that people are gonna be out marching. And I think uh, at least a couple things that we could do is actually published criteria to say, this is how the office is gonna handle these events. And my point of view is that as the Commonwealth's attorney, we have a legal responsibility to review whether law enforcement's declaration of an unlawful assembly or a riot is itself unlawful. In other words, has law enforcement made a declaration that is supported by the evidence? I think that in uh, several instances that we saw this past summer where uh, you know things are being thrown at police at um, Gray Street headquarters or dumpsters are being lit on fire, I think absolutely what we're seeing are legal riots happening. But for the most part, especially the tear gassing incident um, where people were gassed before curfew, what we saw was a unilateral declaration from law enforcement of an unlawful assembly and then using that declaration as carte blanche to essentially clean up the protesters in whatever way they, they wanted. And, you know, when the mayor came out and asked for um, the charges against those protesters to be dismissed, I mean, under the system I've described to you, my office would do its own independent analysis whether or not there was sufficient evidence to declare the assembly unlawful. I think in that particular instance, there was not. And if there was not, then apart from, you know, key instances of say assault or vandalism of property, you know, we're not going to take part in prosecuting cases that derive from an unlawful declaration of an unlawful assembly.
2: So we've gone to the end of my question. So now it's time for you to have your free for all moment. What did we not touch on that you really want to get out there? What's the message? that you want um, the voters to hear from you today? You
1: know, I have to really get out this idea that things are not well in the criminal justice system in the city of Richmond. You know, we've got a Commonwealth attorney's office that does not think about people as people, they think about people as paperwork. You know, I am in these courtrooms every day, so too is my wife, who's a senior public defender with the city. This is who we are. This is how we live our lives. And we know how this office is advocating to send nonviolent people to jail every day. I've stood next to 70-year-old women in the circuit court with nonviolent records who are uh, on supervised probation, believe it or not, and heard prosecutors argue to put her in jail for six months. Um, I have stood next to a client who was a young black man just a couple of months ago, um, who yes, he did have a record, but it was old, about 12 years old. Um, and he'd been charged with distribution, but he was homeless, living in an abandoned truck, dealing enough heroin, about 20 to $40 worth a day, just to get high, just to get his own high. Um, and the Commonwealth attorney's prosecutor tried to put him in prison for four years. You know, I told the judge that we're smarter than that. We're more humane than that. We can be more effective than that. That this person had a spot in a local uh, recovery house, a real life program, that he could get a job. He could get counseling. He could get his life together and he'd be the better for it. And the city would be the safer for it. And the judge agreed with me. And that's where he is now. He's doing great. Um, He is now doing so well, in fact, That they're looking at making him an assistant house manager. So those are the types of arguments that I've been making on behalf of clients that I would be making as in terms of remaking the system as a whole, that we have to build a criminal justice system that's humane, that holds people accountable, but also does so in a a way that's good for long-term public safety. And that oftentimes means connecting people with the social services that they need to move out of the system for the long term. And I hope that people appreciate how unique that point of view is. And I hope that they will uh, elect to vote for me and vote for that vision come June 8th.
2: Thanks for going ahead and plugging the date for the the primary. So I was going to ask you to do that. (laughs) Well, before we wrap, make sure that you uh, let our listeners know how they can contact your campaign.
1: People interested in getting involved with the campaign can please go to our website at TomRVACA.com or you can just Google Tom Barber and we'll come up pretty quickly in your search results. Um, And if folks aren't tired of Zoom or hearing me talk about these issues, I'm actually on a Zoom meeting every night at 6 p.m. that's open to the public, accessible through my website. And I would love it if people listening would show up, continue the conversation and then come out and volunteer with us Make a donation, um, host a yard sign, or absolutely get out there and vote. All
2: right. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. And good luck in your race. We'll be watching.
1: Thank you, Melissa. And thank you to RVA Dirt for uh, keeping the city engaged in issues that matter. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Everybody's posting, all political and woken, on your social, so outspoken, that's sweet. But that sweet doesn't do enough for me. Mm. Young people like to talk that big talk. Young people are the biggest voting block. You can only make a change if you check that damn box. Welcome listeners to another candidate forum, helping you help us help you help the community figure out who our candidates are. And today with us, we have a candidate that's running for come with attorney i'll let you uh introduce yourself and first start off with who you are how you uh got here since you are actually the incumbent what's been going on how you came into this role what made you want to do this your background how much
3: how much time how much time do we have
0: here not that much but give (laughs) give us a little give us a little little mini bio okay okay mini
3: mini bio So hello, good evening, everybody. My name's Colette Wallace McKeachin. Thank you so much to WRIR and uh, my gracious host and hostess. Oh, two hosts. Um, And uh, so I am excited about being Richmond's Commonwealth attorney and I hope that you all will reelect me for uh, my first four year term. I uh, grew up in Connecticut uh, moved to Virginia for a law school and have been with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office for over 25 years. So I have dedicated my life to the victims of uh, violent crime in the city of Richmond, and I hope to continue to do that um, in my next term.
0: All right, all right, all right. That was, I mean, that was concise. I thought yep. you was okay. Good. I know you. I know
3: you'll have follow-up questions, so I'm leaving space for the questions.
0: There we go. There we go. All right. So we'll, and we try to keep, so that it's fair, we'll ask the same mm-hmm. questions that we had of the other candidate as well. So
2: okay. we'll that way,
0: there's definitely no secret that Richmond has had quite a way to go when it comes to reform in terms of public safety, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the main or major areas that you either have zeroed in on, which has been difficult with pandemic, of course, but, or that you would like to zero in on in the upcoming term, Um, what sort of approach would you take in reforming the criminal justice system?
3: So I'm so glad that you have mentioned reform a couple of times. So the three principles that this office runs by are reform, restore, and rehabilitate. So those are the three R's, as opposed to reading, writing, and arithmetic, reform, (laughs) restore, and rehabilitate. And the reason those are also essential is because... um, given the past year that we've had, but even before that, the prior 400 years, there is a lot of reform necessary, not only in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, not only in the criminal justice system, but in all of the systems that work in the United States of America. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of your listeners know that African-Americans have been the canary in the coal mine of American history. So if something bad is happening in that coal mine, it's going to happen to us first. And that has clearly happened with the criminal justice system. And so I feel deeply because of my personal history, um, with my parents being the first in their families to graduate from college, um, with my wanting to become a lawyer because of what I saw happening with um, the Black Panther trials in Connecticut when I was growing up there, um, I have felt a duty to, um, as the older people would say, to my race, um, to, to um, be a, a light, hopefully, and stand in the gap that exists between true justice in the criminal system and the way that, our, that people, especially under-resourced people, are round through the criminal justice system. So reform, restore, meaning restore people to a better sense of relationship within their community. Um, That means focusing on the victims and restorative justice principles. And so I want to bring those into the Richmond uh, uh, court system and then rehabilitate, provide uh, resources and alternatives to incarceration and diversion programs so that individuals can be rehabilitated and be restored to their community. So if you think about restore, reform, and rehabilitate, when our office is doing all three of those things, then we are helping heal the harms that occurred in the past and hopefully preventing harm in the future.
0: Okay. And I think that you guys actually had a program that was kind of in the works already that was kind of started pre-COVID. I'm sure that probably got a little slowed up with the pandemic. Can you talk about that program a little bit and what that is? And
3: Are you talking about the Beyond, Dial- Beyond Containment Dialogue series? Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, my predecessor, uh, Mike Herring, and um, the community engagement uh, uh, liaison that we have, Iman Shabazz, um, worked with a young woman, I think, from the University of Virginia, and created a document which is on the website of the Commonwealth Attorney. So if you go to rva.gov, which is the city website, and then go to the Commonwealth Attorney's page, you can access that beyond containment document. And from that document, we have had two and are hoping to have a third symposium for the public um, on specific root causes of criminal behavior and how we as a community can ameliorate them. And so the first one was um, at Virginia Union, then we had one at the Calhoun Center in Gilpin Court. Um, And obviously to your point about COVID and everything, I don't quite know how we're gonna orchestrate this third one, but I can tell you and I hope your listeners will attend that it's gonna be about education and juveniles because given the fact that our kids are now going back into Richmond Public Schools and going back after a very traumatizing year, um, you know, we want to be there to wrap our arms around them and make sure that their trauma is recognized, that, that what is going on in their lives is recognized, and that uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, which my office has helped um, uh, minimize, does not somehow rear its ugly head again. So um, the Beyond Containment Dialogue series will continue. It will be focused on education, and it will continue my office's concern for early interventions with juveniles and their families so that they do not become court-involved as juveniles, which we all know leads to court involvement as an adult.
0: The Commonwealth Attorney's Office has been criticized for being outdated in its practices. How would you respond or answer to that complaint, whether you find that to be a, a true assertion or not? What areas do you see where there still are areas, like room for improvement maybe?
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's always room for improvement in any organization. So we have not been perfect in the past and we're not going to be perfect in the future. But what we are going to do is uh, be aware of the trauma-informed, victim-centered, evidence-based practices that are readily accessible to us and utilize those to uh, continue our progressive reforms. So um, to the question of are we outdated, Not at all. In fact, we are leading the path in progressive reform. So Richmond was one of the first jurisdictions to have an adult drug court, which is still going on. Richmond was one of the first jurisdictions to have a mental health docket, which is still going on. Richmond is one of the only jurisdictions in the area where you can come into general district court, which is where most of our caseload is. And if you are a first offender, or if the charge is um, a nonviolent misdemeanor, you can end up doing community service or making restitution to the victim and having your case dismissed. And your listeners may not know that one of the new policies I've instituted is trying to make it easier for people to expunge their charges. So if I can just do like a little public service announcement, if you happen to get a charge, Um, and that charge is dismissed uh, by us or the court, you will receive a yellow business card. And it says, for information about expungement of criminal charges, contact the Richmond Circuit Court Clerk's Office and a phone number. And the reason I had the office create these is because as, as an attorney, I was concerned that people who had charges that were eligible were so... I just didn't have the information to know where to go. Like, okay, I'm in this courtroom. Connected. And at, right, exactly. So it's all about connections and, and information. So now you know where to go. And then once you go to the circuit court clerk's office, they're going to give you a little package. You can fill out the form yourself. You don't need to hire an attorney. The second thing I did was waive the fee because under the law, you have to file that petition with our office and with the clerk's office. And there was a fee for filing that petition, you no longer have to pay that fee. And so once you pay the clerk's office, you just walk your petition down to our office, you give it to our receptionist, it's filed, everything eventually makes its way up to circuit court. And out of 200 uh, expungement petitions last year, we didn't object to any. So I'm hoping that now that people know where to go and what's going to happen and that it's basic, oh, and, once your petition is um, approved by the court, you get the money back that you file that you paid circuit court. So it's essentially a free process now. So I hope your listeners will take advantage of that, and I'm hoping that we have at least a hundred more expungements in 2021 than we did last year. That's, That's my goal.
0: Yeah. So is that is that something that works for newer charges, or is that something that it will even count for previous older charges
3: that it it will count for anything as long as long as it was null prost or dismissed by my office or the court
0: okay
3: yeah so so that's one of the the new reforms um people um we've seen a lot of instances where um people who were uh, sentenced as juveniles Mm -hmm. uh 10 20 30 years ago are still locked up in doc and Mm -hmm. so one of the things uh, i did was revise our juvenile policy so that uh, it's going to greatly reduce the number of juveniles who can ever have a case go uh, to circuit court um, and be certified as an adult. So um, that is yet another way to, to uh, reduce the number of our um, Black and brown um, children being court-involved. It's It's all about early intervention and education and reforming, restoring, and rehabilitating.
0: Let's talk about... it's it's out there, the lack of diversity in the city's um, prosecutable ranks. So only five out of the 40 are people of color. And that's not very representative of the city's
3: inhabitants. How do we fix that? So that is just a part of the office. So the office also has a paralegal staff and it has victim witness staff. Right now, the office is predominantly female, being run by a black female. Um, The uh, victim witness staff is completely female. The uh, paralegals are predominantly female. And so I have a very uh, female woman strong uh, office. And I intend to continue that. Obviously we would like to have as many uh, people of color, whether they're African-American, Asian-American, Middle Eastern, um, as possible to, to, to expand the, the breadth of information and um, thought that goes into each and every individual's case who we look at. So what I've realized and what I've decided to do is not just look to recruit people when they are in their third year of law school. That's too late. So this year, I went back and I got in touch with Howard Law School, and I got in touch with North Carolina Central, and I got in touch with BALSA, the Black Law Students Association at the University of Richmond and the University of Virginia. I attended the Southeastern Minority Job Fair, and I said, look, I am the elected official for this office, and I want you to join this office because prosecutors have so much prosecutorial discretion you need to be on this side of the table. It's fine for a lot of people to say, oh, I want to be a criminal defense attorney and you know, help my community that way. Well, you can also help your community on this side of the table. And if we can't convince people when they are first years and second years to intern with our office and show them what they can do to help the community as prosecutors, then we are missing the boat. And so I am focusing like a laser on getting to law students as early and often as possible. And and, and I will say this, everybody within the criminal justice system in Richmond um, is looking for that same small pool of African-American attorneys and attorneys who are people of color. So if you look at the public defender's office, right? Who sit across the case, they they have the same issue. They only have two uh, public defenders who are people of color. Um, If you look at the criminal defense bar as a whole or the criminal law bar as a whole, it's just a very, very small number of people. And so we need to make a bigger, stronger effort to convince people who think that they cannot be helpful to community and cannot help reform the criminal justice system as prosecutors. This is where you want to be. You want to be on this side of the table. And I want there to be more of us on this side of the table.
0: Yes, yes, and a, a group that Richmond has a lot of that didn't get mentioned, which I think is also g- greatly important in this area um, our Latinx community yes we, yes a representation there as well.
3: Yes yes Richmond- I <laughs> agree and we were we were very fortunate to have um, uh, multiple um, paralegals on our staff who are, are helpful in that um, regard along with our victim witness staff so. Um, you know, it's, it's yet another, um, uh, strong element they were hoping to fill in the future. Some
0: citizens in Richmond have had a long held distrust of law enforcement of any kind, really. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you see yourself building trust in the community? If you make it through this primary reflected, how will you go about having the necessary conversations with community, um, throughout Richmond's community justice system that might not be as receptive to the change as you are?
3: So it's all about accessibility and accountability. And luckily over my past 25 years being with the office, I have been able to attend innumerable civic association meetings and be in Gilpin court and be in hillside Court and be all over the city, be at the churches, be at the festivals, be at the, um, you know, whether it was the the Two Street Festival in Jackson Ward, or whether it was something happening um, on Southside. I want people, when I came into office, and I've only been in office for 12 months, well, 14 months now. um, But when I came into office, I wanted people to see their commonwealth attorney out in public and I wanted people to feel as though they had access to me. And so one of the things I did was revise the uh, website that I talked about, the rva.gov website, so that people can now contact an individual Commonwealth's attorney um, who is responsible for their precinct if they have a problem. They can email that person directly about anything. Um, People have called me to say, hey, I saw you at this event. And you gave out your card and so i'm just calling to ask about x y and z uh i don't hide behind an executive assistant or anything i i want people to to know that i am here and accessible and wanting to talk with them so
0: richmond has recently kind of put together conjoined enacted created um the citizen review board Mm -hmm. right um which i think they just had their first meeting Last week, I believe. I think so, yeah. What are your uh, thoughts and, I guess, what are your thoughts around that group and how your office might be able to work with that group in the future um, and how that can maybe change the scope of the previous question, how that conversation Mm -hmm. interaction can happen with
3: the bridging community and law enforcement? Mm -hmm, Right. So it's got to be, it's got to be... two, three, four, five-way communication, right, between all the different entities and, and 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 communities. So, number one, I support the formation of the um, Civilian Review Board. Right now, they are at the task force phase, and so what I understand is the task force is trying to figure out how to structure the board, and then at some point, they'll let us know, and, and then people will be Um, selected for the board or or volunteer for the board, and then the board will start functioning. So I I look forward to working with them. I look forward to seeing um, how they bring their perspective to the criminal justice system, because the more eyes you have on something, the better. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking forward to that community input, and I, I hope to work with them. I certainly would be willing to attend their meetings or to have them um, come to our office, um, so they can see what we do.
0: And last, but certainly, certainly not least, um, if you could change anything about the way your office dealt with the complaints against police during the protests of last summer or, um, police activity, just how that process worked last year, um, what would you do and what would, what would those actions be?
3: Uh, if so, there were, let me break that up and, and, and into a couple of parts. Okay. So, uh, if you look at the protests that began the Friday after George Floyd was killed, so that was like the last Friday in May, and then that first really violent weekend where there were, you know, GRTC buses set on fire and, um, you know, buildings set on fire and dumpsters in the, you know, dump fires in the street looting. Um, legacy black businesses being destroyed. It was was just, it was so sad. I came down that Sunday after the Saturday riots, which is what they were. And it was a beautiful Sunday morning. If you walked down the street and didn't look at the destruction, you would think it was just a lovely day in Richmond. It was really heartbreaking. So uh, looking at that and then getting cases, 200 of the 300 cases were just, for people who had violated the curfew. And if your listeners want to um, Google Governor Northam's curfews during the summer, that curfew that the governor imposed uh, had, a, um, class, had a class one misdemeanor category. So mm-hmm. he decided that it would be a class one misdemeanor. If I could do anything, I would have gone to the governor and said, if anything, it should be a fine. You know? Mm-hmm because people were upset and I understand that. So when 200 people were arrested for curfew violation, the first thing I did was say, nobody's going to jail for this offense, right? So I waived jail. Um, and then the question was, all right, the, the reason the governor imposed the curfew was because of all, of all the violence that had happened in the previous 72 hours. And so that was a public safety um, reason. And I have to respect the governor's decision about that, eight hours of community service and the case will be dismissed and then you can get it expunged. So that was my reaction to that. And then um, probably 80% of those people who were charged with either curfew violations or with actual criminal offenses that occurred during the protests, um, decide to uh, accept the offer of eight hours of community service and had it dismissed. So I was really pleased about the fact that that happened that the criminal bar stepped up and represented them pro bono um, and that it resolved. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we have a much more peaceful summer this year, of course.
0: Well, we covered those. Are That's all of our questions. We thank you so much for coming on. This is a, we've got a little bit of time left. If there's anything that you would like to share about your platform, your campaign space right now, you've got the time to do it. This.
3: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So I, I appreciate that. First, once again, thank you to you. Thank you to your listeners. Um, once again, reform, restore, and rehabilitate. This Commonwealth Attorney's Office is a progressive, forward-moving, innovative Commonwealth Attorney's Office. We are going to do what is necessary to make sure that justice is proportional and reasonable, that it is not targeted at any individual's, and that we stand in the gap that exists between a true, fair, and impartial justice system and what people are experiencing. And it's our duty as Commonwealth's attorneys to be ministers of justice, to um, seek the truth, to be fair, and most of all, to look out for not only the, the feelings and rights of the victims, but also to use our principles of restore, reform, and rehabilitate to take into account the effect of the criminal justice system on individuals who are charged and do what we can to minimize that in the appropriate circumstances. And that's what a progressive commonwealth attorney office does. It looks at both sides and balances both, both sides.
0: All right. Well, we thank you so much for coming
3: on If anybody wants to call me, you can call me directly at 646-4845 or go to my campaign website, collect the number 4rva.com and um, find out any more information or donate or volunteer. And I hope everybody exercises their constitutional rights that our people fought and died for and get out there and vote.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So listeners, we you've heard it. We need to do that. We've got to go vote. You know what time it is. New Jersey has dirty water and Flint still does too. So we need to get on that. RPS was fully funded last year and we're hoping that council will pass us so that we can get this thing a rolling and they'll be fully funded this year and our kids can go back to school to brand new schools, to those schools that they have not gone into yet. So that's important and that they'll be fully funded when they get there. And you know it, I know it, we all know it together, but we're working on it. Richmond is most certainly still racist, but one day at a time, we're getting there. Thank you for listening today. Get off the couch, off your ass. believe this this boy came up to me the other day and said he wasn't gonna be voting i had to say sorry to this man i need an educated king vote y'all tell your mama your auntie your sister your brother your cousin your side (coughs) your (coughs) side (coughs) everybody let's get into it come on let's make it trendy to vote